Hi there, and good day. Welcome to North Bay's Heritage Diary. Listen up, and we shall weave for you tales of days and times gone by, which can inform today and show the way to tomorrow. This Municipal Heritage Committee podcast looks at our town, our people, and our stories. This time, we open the diary of our Voices from the Past for a conversation with the late Professor Bob Surtees, one of the original seven Nipissing University faculty and author of Northern Connection about the early days of the ONR and an authority on native treaties. This was originally recorded in 2001 as part of the Kojiko Cable series, Life Is. In it, he talks about the early days of Nipissing and teaching Canadian history. Please excuse any dated references. Are you happy? I was going to hit you with this right off the top. Okay. I was going to do it later. But are you happy that you stayed here absolutely. in North Bay and at Nipissing? Oh, absolutely. I'm thrilled. When we first came, uh, I was the only person who was... No, actually, there were two of us who were local, who were on faculty. Charlotte Ames was a local teacher, and I grew up here. Well, that, that is, I went to high school here and then was lucky enough to come back just when the university was starting. But the others were all new. And I recall talking to Stan Lawler, who was also one of the, mm-hmm. the original cast, as you say. And at the time, I was planning to stay for my entire career. What is a bit amusing is that I was planning to enter politics and told him that. And he said that, uh, no, he would be here for a couple of years and then move on. Well, we all know what happened. Stan, uh, as a matter of fact, I ran for school board that first year. And Stan helped me. And I lost. <laughs> Then a few years later, Stan ran for alderman, and I helped him, so we got it right the, the, the second time. And, and of course, uh, Stan, like me, is more than happy, Peter. We're thrilled with, uh, with the decision to stay here because we are thrilled with what's happened to our institution, yeah. which began in a condemned home for the aged with 49 students. We used to laugh and say, well, there were 50, but somebody left the door open and <laughs> one got away. <laughs> one got away. But, uh, <laughs> but that's what we started with. Seven faculty, 49 students, the original castle home, which was actually condemned. We had to do some work to make it fit safety standards. And we were there for five years on that campus, as was uh, Canada, which was then Cambrian. It mm-hmm. was in the old school, Worthington Street School. And so there were these two new institutions starting at the same time. And uh, now look at them. Well, they're, yeah, they're, they're, it's pretty sensational, I think. We were all very young and very excited, very excited about it. And now we're just as excited, except we're all 35 years older. Yes. Politics. I had no idea you wanted to be a po- You actually had designs, did you? Well, I consider politics to be the most important profession that we've got. Uh, I really do. I know that there More are a lot. More important than teaching. Oh, far more important than teaching, far more important than medicine, far more important than anything else. And the reason is very simple. It is the political arena which provides the rules of the game, which provides the nature of society, which provides the way in which we will have or not have freedoms. And therefore, I know that it is not very popular to say this about politicians because we, they are condemned so very often, and I think unfortunately. But forget about the politicians themselves. Think about what the profession is. And it is the one which sets the tone and the rules and the economy and the way we behave. And within that milieu, we have other important activities that are permitted to flourish 
because we have the pol right political environment. You haven't heard this before, have you? <laughs> no, I haven't, but, but I'm surprised you, you ran for school board and lost, and yes. that was it. Uh, yes. But yet you're standing up here and, and, and saying, or sitting here, and saying, you know, politics is what makes the country go. Well, I was very, very active for about a decade after I came back to North Bay in political activities. I did run for school board, and I, I didn't make it. I think I might have had I run again. I was only 26 years yeah. old at the time, and I think I... But along the way, things prevent someone mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. coming active. You did not become active until rather later. Yeah. Okay? And um, the most famous of our current politicians uh, did not seek political office for quite some time. Now, once he did, I'm referring, of course, to the premier, he became, proved to be very good at it, first as school board and then and then later in the legislature and currently, currently holds the, the, the top job in the province. But as his vistas opened, or as yours opened, mine sort of became somewhat eclipsed as I proceeded with my two careers, my family career with a lot of children, mm -hmm. and my really very strong desire to make our institution as good as I could help make it. Mm -hmm. And so one eclipsed the other, as it turned out. But yes, I strong, strong feelings about the uh, importance of politics. What that I never that you uh, never that you oh, now sometimes that yes oh yes sometimes I regret that I did not pursue that one venue that I still consider to be so darned important. But and I know we didn't expect to be talking about no, this no, it's, at it's, all. It's evanescent. It's it's something that's. I mean, you're you're a big name, Mike Michael, for example. So, you know, he's premier now. But yes. ten years from now, I mean, he'll be in all likelihood, it's another citizen. Yes. Your teaching is affecting kids yes. for many years. You're writing, hopefully, the same way. In yes. Year. So you're, you're maybe having a more lasting effect, although Michael Harris is not a good example because he's had a lasting effect on the province. Most politicians don't have that effect on a, on a province uh, or even a city. Or even if they do, it is very finite. Yeah. And, and it is more finite than the potential for someone in one of the professions, particularly teaching, in which the potential good that we can do, and the potential bad, yes, but, yes, uh, that's true. but the potential good that we can do is very long-standing. I've been doing it for 36 years, 34 at Nipissing, and then I taught high school for two years before that. And I hope that I've had good effects, etc., either in teaching or coaching or the different things that I've done along the way. History? The whole time? Yes. Okay. When I went to school, you, you had a, a different types of history teacher. Most of them, unfortunately, were deadly boring. They were date conscious. They were write this on the board and copy it sort mm -hmm. of things. And now, granted, a university is a different, whole different ball of wax. I'll ask you, are you a good teacher? Can you make it come alive? I think I can, yes. Okay. And I think I do. And that isn't terribly humble, and I apologize no, for that. No, that's fine. Uh, I don't know what your specialty is uh, in history, Where you, what you specialize in. Tell me what that, that is, first well, of all. Well, uh, specialty, obviously, one of the major fields that I do is Canadian history, mm -hmm. and obviously one of the fields I, within Canadian history that I deal with is Native history. Mm -hmm. uh, indeed, most of the books that I've published have been in the field of Native history or Native land claims and the like. I also teach a course in military history. I teach a course in American history. I have taught a course in ancient history. See, one of the things that one does when one begins uh, an institution is uh, become very versatile because, because we have to provide a range of courses mm -hmm. which require that we learn 
uh, a range of course. No, I, it, I no. don't know quite what it is that, um, that, that, that you would find as an example of... Military history. All right. That's interesting that, that you, because I knew you'd been involved with, uh, with the Native history. You did a whole book on Indian treaties. I remember that yes. was one of your first books. Yes. Military history. The story that Canada came alive in, in World War I at uh, Vimy Ridge. Yes. Uh, as it came alive as a nation. Do you believe that? You're referring to the account by Pierre Burton. The there have been others that said that this that was a turning point in 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 the way Canada was viewed by the rest of the world. Well, I wouldn't pinpoint Vimy. Certainly, the Second Battle of Ypres, and probably even more predominant for Canadians was Passchendaele. But Vimy, of course, is the one that the event that has been cited most often. I suspect because more people have written about Vimy. And we paid a terrible price at yeah. Vimy, 6,000 teenagers. I keep saying that. Obviously, some of them weren't teenagers, but none of them was an old man. Yeah. How you know? do you make something like that that is so foreign to our young people today? I mean, trench warfare <laughs> is like back to the days of the Saracens almost, yes. as far as their, the knowledge or feelings. Probably more than the, the Saracens is something... And you're referring to the wide open slashing warfare yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the cavalry and the like. That's actually probably something that our, our youngsters today c could understand more than even the trenched warfare. Certainly the uh, participation of the Canadians in the First World War, whether it be at Ypres or Passchendaele or Vimy or any of the other really remarkable incidents along the way, such as Wap May, who probably yeah. shot down the Red Baron, although Australian ground fire claims that they, mm -hmm. in, they indeed uh, performed that. But warfare is such an in incredibly terrible experience, on the one hand, that brings out such enormous courage and such enormous, marvelous characteristic in, in the men and women who fight it. And uh, with respect to the First World War, I deal with it. Um, I really, you know, I only get a couple of classes on the f on on the war because because I have to cover the whole of Canadian history in seven months. But is that a problem? Oh, of course it is. But Would you prefer to zero in? Well, we do that as well. But let me go back to the to the warfare thing. The, in in that, there's the story of the war itself and the remarkable courage some of the remarkable individual events, and, uh, and I mentioned Watt May in particular, because there you can identify it. It yeah. was one man in an yes. airplane against and one more man in an airplane. At Vimy, we sent 6,000 people over the top against machine guns and barbed wire and all those other darn things. The fact is that we sent these 6,000 men, and, and by God, they held when they shouldn't have. So it was an event of enormous pride not only for the young men who did it, but for all of the friends and relatives and everything else back home who learned about it. And they were fiercely proud, not only because of the event and their accomplishment, but also they were wearing a Canadian uniform. Mm -hmm. And so in the sense that the First World War inspired a sense of inherent homegrown patriotism, then yes, I, I would agree with those who say Canada became alive as a nation at that point. But Canada had been a nation before and before and after with certain other events that, that have inspired both unity and patriotism and sometimes division, you know, some, sometimes intense division. 
what I attempt to do <laughs> is try to explain, and to some extent I perform as much as I teach during my lectures. Do you? Okay. Oh, yes. um, but what I try to do is place this event in, within the context of the times and keep emphasizing the nature of the people who were in fact engaged in these activities, whether it be the rebellions of 1837, which was a divisive event, the contributions during the First World War, which were for the most part uh, unifying, uh, the Korean experience, the warfare, the warfare instances, which for the most part have been, have been unifying events, um, and, and try to place it in context. We need historians to provide a degree of structure and interpretation to, to, to this study. Now, I don't mean that we have to adopt a Marxist view or a social view or a conservative view. I simply mean that we have to provide some order. Otherwise, history becomes simply a series of things, mm -hmm. events. Scattergun facts. Scattergun facts, exactly. So we need structure. We need some interpretation. We need some themes. But at the same time, what holds a person's interest, whether it's you or me or my student or anybody else, are the details, the interesting details of how this person did this and maybe some of the background associated with this individual. And thus it behooves the historian to integrate the, the structure with interesting and significant details. Let, let me try to pull one example. When I was doing the Northern Connection, which is a, the, the basically the early story of the Ontario Northland Railway, which at the time, of course, was called the Temiskamina Northern Ontario Railway, one of the points I wanted to make, or one of the themes I wanted to stress concerning the early years between 1905 and 1914, from the beginning of the railway, which was 1902, and the First World War, was the way in which an amazing variety of people came into the North as a result of the railway. Mm -hmm. And so I have a small section in the book in which I indicate how certain movie stars made their way up here. Another in which I indicate that uh, some royalty came up here. But also, I take make reference to an announcement whereby a man named Leonard Miller will address the uh, group in Cobalt and at the time he was a member of the Salvation Army. But he had, 25 years earlier, ridden with Jesse James and <laughs> worked in the area. Oh, yeah. And so he was a reformed bank robber, a train robber is what he was. And so, as I say, in that particular little section, the theme was that of newcomers and diversity of newcomers, and here are some examples. Mm -hmm. And some people found that interesting. I hope you did. Yeah, that would <laughs> be a great story. Yeah. What was he trying to do when he was addressing the people in Coniston? Oh, you he was, well, he was promoting the Salvation Army. Promoting, oh, all right, okay. He okay. was, uh, he was with the Salian then. He'd reformed. And, uh, was reformed, and uh, he was talking to a bunch of largely young men in Cobalt, which today has about 4,000 people, but that, at that time, had probably 20,000 yeah, yeah. because of the silver so mines and the like. Hillebury was 
two or three times the size that it was then, and New Liskert, of course, was also bigger. So the Tritown, you know, which today among them has perhaps 12,000, maybe 15,000 people, was bigger than present-day North Bay at, for a brief time, an opera house and everything. The Ontario Northland Railroad, the, the whole story, w when you've gone back, have a book on it, and you see what's happening to it now, does, does that bother you at all? To, to well, of how do you feel I, about it? Well, I find it distressing to some degree that something that has been this vital and this important is, is fading. I think it's inevitable. Um, the railway that we have today is still very important for the North. I can't see the railway closing. There are, there are still benefits to be made from using rail for f certain kinds of freight. Uh, there are areas of the north, such as Moosonee, which still require some access other than air or snowmobile or canoe, which of course it was always obtained by, by canoe. But you know, in the time that I'm talking about, early years of the railway, the railway was more than just this link. The people on the railway were the main leaders in the community because their positions were such that it was they who could arrange for this siding or could arrange for this special train to go from Cobalt to the Porcupine to play a game of hockey. Mm -hmm. And everything along the line was to a very great extent dictated by the line itself. And, and we were fortunate, I think, in, in the early history of our railway that we had some really very remarkable people who were really new Northerners, but they very quickly became Northerners. I'm thinking of George Lee, for example, who came from, came from the old Pembroke-Kingston uh, uh, Railway into the Temiskamina Northern Ontario Railway. And there were hundreds of people like that. As a matter of fact, almost everybody who was in the North in 19, I don't know, let us say 1920, was a newcomer. Yeah. By right. definition, it was a frontier. There used to be an expression when I was living in South Porcupine, and I'm now talking the 40s and 50s, uh, we used to say there are no, no grandparents in the North. Okay, We all had grandparents, but they weren't they in were the North. Somewhere My else. grandparents were in Chalk River, somebody else's were in Sudbury, somebody else's were in Ottawa. And the society that I grew up in was actually a society of 30 and 40 year old men and women. There were very few people in their 60s or 70s because the community had only been around. Let's see, I moved there in 1946. Uh, South Porcupine was at that point uh, 35 years old. So, so it's, and, and this is a sort of thing that I try to embellish my lectures with. That is the personal details and specific details about events that are really quite, I think, quite interesting. Now, you've, you've written The Northern Connection. Yes. And that takes the history of the ONR up to? Well, really up until the end, of the, the end of the Second World War. I carry it through in the last chapters through to, the, to what was then the present, which was 1992. What I'm working on now, of course, is again commissioned by the railway, or by the commission, commissioned by the commission. Um, and that is a study of, of, of the northeastern region of Ontario and northwestern region of Quebec before the railway. That is, oh, the, 
the, the, the early explorations, both from the north, Henry Hudson and mm -hmm. Captain James, from the south, Father Albanel, and, uh, and then, of course, uh, Radisson, and um, the competition for control of this northeastern corridor for, gosh, you know, Peter, 200 years before, before the railway. To me, this story is even more fascinating. But more difficult to research. Is that right? Uh, yes, it's more difficult in as much as the data is not as, as broad. When I did the Northern Connection, I had the archives of Ontario mm -hmm. Northland to draw from. Uh, for this, I have to draw from the Jesuit relations, from the, uh, various French sources for the period up to, up to well, really right up until the present, because a, good, a goodly portion of Northern Ontario is Francophone. The longest period, from the days of Champlain through to the days of the conquest, uh, this region was, for the most part, dominated by the French traders and the French missionaries. But there was always that element from the north, well, the Hudson's Bay Company in particular. The story of the north in those days really was competition between, as a matter of fact, that's the title of the book, between the river and the bay. The river being the um, St. Lawrence River and the bay being James Bay and the competition for control of that hinterland, which first. for the most part, which for the most part, provided the economic foundation for Canada, not, yeah. not just for the East, for Canada, from, I feel safe in saying, from 1608 when Champlain came through to, I would say, 1800. The, the, it sparked the exploration. Sparked a lot of things, did it not? When going beyond the world. Well, it, it certainly sparked that, but, but it was the main source of income yeah. All right. for this entire period. See, a great deal is known about the voyageurs and the, the incredible romantic stories about the move into the West. And that's true. But the country paid its bills on the furs taken between North Bay and James Bay mm -hmm. for about 150 years. And it was the best fur, you see. The original coureurs came from, were, were developed in this region. I want to ask you, if you had to pick one, it, it, write, research, or teach. Yes, but you see, I don't, uh, but I don't think that one can do what you just suggested. I think they're all integrated. I think that researching, writing, and teaching are all part of the same envelope. And I can teach by reading the works of others. Mm -hmm. So I can do that. I could research the things that other people have already researched, but there's not really much point in that. But what I produce in the classroom comes from research and, believe it or not, from writing. Because it is by writing that one imposes order and structure okay. and, quite frankly, logic <laughs> yes. on, the, on the course of events. And I find myself writing something and realize, oh my goodness, I've, I've drawn this conclusion and this conclusion from this and this and it just doesn't fit. So you have to stroke it all out. And, and go back and begin again. And you know, the best people to tell you when a wrong turn has been made <laughs> are the people that say, but sir, didn't you just mention last yes, week that yes, this, and yes, you say, yes. my goodness, he's right, or she's right. I'm, a, I'm one of those who firmly believe that research, writing, and teaching are all, or if you will, scholarship and teaching 
are simply the inverse and obverse of the same coin. I think they go together. Many years more teaching to you, Bob. This edition of our Heritage Diary Voices from the Past with the late Bob Surtees was originally recorded in 2001 for the Kochiko cable TV production Life Is and is rebroadcast in this format through the courtesy of Kochiko, your TV. Thank you for spending some time with us and listening to our stories. These productions are put together by the North Bay Municipal Heritage Committee not only to retell old tales, but hopefully to kindle interest in area history. Local lore is important to any community, and we shouldn't let it go unremarked and unremembered. Views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the Corporation of the City of North Bay or its employees. Join us next time when we flip another page of the Diary of Our Shared Past. You can reach us at peter.corello at cityofnorthbay.ca. Production, Casey Monkelbahn and Peter Corello. Pete Handley speaking.